Well, let me welcome to the program Carlo Broussard. Carlo works for Catholic Answers. Now, are you officially a staff apologist at Catholic Answers? Yes, full-time staff apologist and speaker here. Been for that seven is- years, actually. It's going to be seven years next month, believe it or not. I can't believe it. It's crazy how time flies. That is amazing. I, I remember, I think the last time we were together was at Faith on Fire in Anacortes, Washington. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do, yes. Yeah. I was working for Father Spitzer then at the time. Well, the that's how I remembered you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's so, been seven years now, full-time apologist and speaker. Man, that is really awesome. So let me ask, uh, did you ever imagine that this is what you'd be doing with your life? <laughs> uh, no, not when I was in Southern Louisiana as a young teenage boy pursuing a Cajun music career. Uh, I was on the bandstand from the time I was 13 playing in the bars and the honky-tonks and pursuing a musical career, playing the Cajun accordion, having my own band to the time I was 20, which is when I gave it all up in order to pursue theology and philosophy because I discovered a newfound love to study apologetics and philosophy and theology and sort of initially having a desire to do what Tim Staples did because Tim (laughs) Staples was instrumental in my you know, falling in love with the faith and apologetics. I heard his conversion story, was listening to his tape sets and teachings and kind of developed a desire to want to do what he did. And so I started pursuing that newfound dream, gave up my music career, started pursuing apologetics and theology, went to start my formal education. And one thing led to another by God's grace and his divine providence he chose me to be sitting in the seat at Catholic Answers, which is a very privileged seat to be a, a, a member on this team here. And there's so many more qualified and other people who could do it, but God in his graciousness has chosen me. So here I am. You know, Carlo, you said uh, several things there that I want to jump on. The first is you revealed how old you are because you said listening to tapes. I don't know if you, <laughs> you caught yourself, but you're completely exposed, okay? I used, I used so. to have the Walkman on my belt, man, with the headphones. I, used I to remember that. Yeah. yeah. That is so cool. So uh, so it, it all began in the era of cassette tapes. And I, I never even knew there was a thing called a Cajun accordion. Uh, yes. what, what's a Cajun accordion? Well, it, yeah, so it's a unique style of accordion. It's a single row, 10 buttons, push and pull. Uh, a little bit different than the piano accordion. And it's used primarily as the primary instrument in Cajun music. And so if anybody's interested, they can go to my website, carlobrusor.com. Just type in Blast from the Past. And there's about five audio clips that you can get a sense of what I used to do. And it's audio clips from a festival I was playing when I was 19, back in two, year 2001, I think. Or maybe when I was eight. Yeah, it was when I was 18, year 2000, October 2000. Okay, so and this is the, my last question before we're going to get to your book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Uh, and it's, uh, was there some event that precipitated the turn to Tim Staples as a source of information or insight, or were you like a devout Catholic in a Cajun band? Right. So uh, I I had some profound religious experiences as a young boy due to my mom's influence involved in ministry. When I started playing Cajun music and started getting into the nightclub scene, that religious sense began to become eclipsed. 
But then I had a good Protestant friend of mine who began to sort of shed some light about getting me to think about my relationship with our Lord. But it wasn't until I heard Tim Staples' conversion story. My mom had a bunch of tapes, right? She used to listen to Father Ken Roberts and Mother Angelica and all of these Catholic speakers. And she just so happened to have a tape of Tim Staples and his conversion story. I listened to that conversion story and I was sort of introduced to apologetics for the first time. And a love for apologetics and a desire to study and learn developed within my heart. And that's when I was like, okay, I want to start studying this stuff. This is a lot of fun. It was interesting. It was appealing to me. And which was interesting because I was not an intellectual kid. So why the intellectual side of the faith attracted me is only by God's grace. And I started studying from there. And one thing led to another to eventually pursue it formally. So here I am. Yeah. That's really cool. I love that. It's a great story. So now in this whole journey that you've you've been on, um, trying to discern like what's God's call for your life, you, here you are doing this full-time work as an apologist. I'm still here. discerning too. <laughs> well, that's what I was kind of wondering here yeah. is um, I'm sure you get asked this question, right? Do you have a, do you have a sense of um, like if, if we meet again in 10 years, what, what, what's Carlo doing? What's your life situation? Yeah, I have no idea, Tom. Uh, as of now, the Lord is still providing Catholic Answers the funding to give me a paycheck. <laughs> and to where I can, I'm so blessed to be able to, uh, to be a member on the team here. So as long as Catholic Answers is willing to have me and the ship is still sailing, Tom, I'm going to be a, a member of the crew here until God calls me otherwise. Uh, I am pursuing my PhD in philosophy. So I'm working on my dissertation right now under the direction of Dr. Gavin Kerr through St. Patrick's Pontifical University in Maynooth, Ireland. So I am working on getting a PhD primarily to uh, foster and help my ministry here at Catholic Answers. But of course, of course, if something happens in the future in God's divine providence, if something happens, Catholic Answers takes different directions or is no longer able to support me and provide me a position here on staff. I'll always have that PhD in my back pocket to be able to go and teach at a university or something. Uh, I hope that I can stay with Catholic Answers as long as they will have me because they are a great team to work for here. And I just can't say enough about Catholic Answers and Chris Check and his being at the helm of the ship here. It's just been such a blessed experience and I hope and pray that God's will and God's will, I can stay on as, as long as he wants me to. Okay. So a lot of folks that are watching this video or listening on, uh, on the radio right now, or listening to the podcast version of our interview, they hear you talk about, okay, being together with these other like folks that people know, right. At Catholic answers. And yes. Uh, and so like, what's it like in the room? Like, do they ever get into <laughs> arguments like about, no, we can't lead about the blessed mother like that. We got to talk about it like this. And, <laughs> and so Give me a story that no one yeah. has heard before about the inner life of Catholic Answers that you're just like, whoa, that was awesome. Yeah, I don't know if I can think of one particular story off the top of my head, Tom, but the answer to your question is yes, there is healthy debate amongst us apologists because there is room within the boundaries of Catholic teaching where apologists can disagree and agree, right? And kind of say, well, that argument works, that argument doesn't work. That's sort of 
the gist of where we might disagree on some things. And whether, whenever there is permitted differences of theological opinion on certain issues, uh, us as apologists may very well come down on, on different sides of that issue. And we always have that healthy, cordial, friendly, brotherly debate, you know, of going back and forth. Now, it used to be that that took place in-house, you know, face-to-face, uh, but the majority of us are working remote now. So Jimmy Aiken is remote pretty much. He very seldom comes in the office. Trent Horn is remote. Joe Heschmeyer is remote. Tim Staples only comes in once a week to do the radio. I live 65 miles north. I used to come in every day, but I only come in whenever I do studio time now. So very seldom do we have that face-to-face one-on-one meeting like we used to. But I will say this, Tim Staples and I, we share an office now. And so whenever we happen to be in the office together, man, it's a delight, Tim. We don't get any work done with regard to writing because (laughs) we're debating issues. (laughs) We're doing work in other ways, right? So we'll research together and think through certain issues. It'll be interesting because we'll start our day and be like, okay, we're going to be quiet and we're like typing away. And then like five minutes later, Tim will be like, so... What do you think of this? Let me ask you something. <laughs> or I'll be like, Tim, I got an objection. Would you help me out? And then four hours later, we're still talking. <laughs> that is so cool. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of questions and, and you can bring them back to your team of apologists and see what answers they come up with. So Augustine versus Aquinas, who had a bigger impact apologetically uh, in the history of the church? Yeah, so, I think I think an answer would be both and to that one. <laughs> oh, there you go. That was good. Yeah. That's well, a I good theory. That's a good one. And then, hey, who's the third most important Catholic theologian slash apologist uh, among the doctors of the church? Oh, you know, man. I don't know. That's a great question. I'd have to give some thought to that one yeah. uh, of who we would appeal to for that one, because there's so many. That's a good right. question. I, I, I'm going to have to bow. I'm going to have to punt on that one. Well, you don't have to punt, but I want you to bring it to the guys. You bring okay. it to the guys All and right. you just say, hey, I have a, I have a question and w- what's the right answer here? So <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess uh, maybe Bellarmine, maybe. Uh, that, that, was actually, that, that was right? actually the first name that came to mind. I almost said it, but I reserved. I was yeah. going to say Robert Bellarmine, but he's one <laughs> among many for sure. Right, right. All right. Well, we're talking today. I, I didn't mean to make a challenge to you and looking for a response. There you go. <laughs> Being a little clever there with the answers. Yeah. Uh, Carlo is very kind to come on today to talk with me about his book, Meeting the Protestant Response. And uh, folks, I want you to be able to get this book. It's a fascinating book. And you're probably familiar with Carlo's first book. If you follow Carlo at all or his um, his his history, the arc of his career, um, one of his first books. I don't know if this was your first book or you had a book on purgatory as well. Right. Uh, yeah, this this one, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, was my second book. My first book was called Prepare the Way, dealt Prepare with strategies way. for helping people overcome obstacles to God, the gospel, and the church. And then Meeting the Protestant Challenge was my second book. Purgatory was my third book. Okay, got it. So Meeting the Protestant Challenge came out a few years ago, 2019, I think. And uh, in it, uh, Carlo, you did a, a wonderful job, a masterful job of helping Catholics who get faced with the question, like, where's that in the Bible? How's that? Yeah. How's that a biblical belief for so many Catholic beliefs? I had that conversation earlier this week at dinner time. Unexpectedly, awesome. had some folks yeah. over, and and it was where is the Immaculate Conception in the Bible? So, right. uh, so that's a great. And so I can have you answer that question. We're recording this on a great feast day, the feast of the coronation. But then 
you came out with the second book. And this is the book we're here to talk about, folks. You can go to catholic.com to shop to get this book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. And when I first saw the book, I was like, whoa. And the interesting thing was my 16-year-old son grabbed it. I didn't even get to read it for a while because he had it by his bedside. And awesome. you can tell you can tell Joe Heschmeyer and you can tell Trent Horn and you can tell uh, <laughs> who was the other one. Um, uh, one other Catholic. We had three Catholic answers books uh, come here, all these new releases. And yeah. he grabbed yours. And, all right, man. Yeah, there you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rub that pie in their face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for folks that are and they're not able to see the picture on the screen, they're listening to the podcast or the radio. Um, what was the intent of this book meeting the Protestant yeah. response? Yeah. So just as contrast, by way of contrast with meeting the Protestant challenge, meeting the Protestant challenge dealt with 50 objections that took the form. How can the church teach X when the Bible says Y, right? How can the church teach Mary is a perpetual virgin when the Bible says Jesus had brothers? Those are alleged contradictions between the belief and scripture. And so meeting the Protestant challenge, Tom, set out to defend the beliefs themselves in the face of these alleged contradictions or conflicts with the Bible. And so I, I showed that indeed there are no conflicts and that the beliefs are consistent with and supported by the Bible. Meeting the Protestant response is directed at defending the Catholic arguments that we've employed in support of our beliefs for the past 2000 years, particularly looking at certain biblical texts that we've appealed to for biblical justification and grounds for a particular Catholic belief. So Matthew 16, 18, Peter being the rock in support of the papacy, say, or John 20, 23, Jesus giving the apostles the authority to forgive and retain sins in support of the Catholic belief of the sacrament of reconciliation. Now, Whenever I would talk to people who were just getting started in apologetics, Tom, and all excited about these biblical texts and Catholic arguments and the Catholic-Protestant dialogue, they always would say, without fail, these texts are so clear, the Catholic arguments are so sound, why don't Protestants buy it? Mm -hmm. You know, obviously they've read these Bible passages, why don't they see it in support of the Catholic belief? Mm -hmm. And so I set out to answer that question that there, there is an answer to, those, to that question. There are reasons that Protestants have not to read these biblical texts in the way that Catholics read it. There are reasons why Protestants remain Protestant in the face of these Catholic arguments and that they don't buy it. So I wanted to articulate and explain what those reasons were. How is it that Protestant ap pro apologists read these texts other than the Catholic reading, mm -hmm. and then see if we can uh, engage with those Protestant responses and analyze them and see what sort of success they have. And of course, ultimately, as I point out in the book, and I argue in the book, they fail to succeed in refuting the Catholic argument. And so the Catholic argument remains standing. So that was sort of what teed up the idea that it would be nice to have a handbook of these Protestant responses because, Tom, you know, Catholic apologists have been dealing with a lot of these comebacks for many years now, and it's embedded in the mountain of literature that is present. So it, I thought it would be nice to pull them out and have a nice, concise handbook that deals with them. And of course, 
pulling together all of the various answers to these comebacks from a variety of Catholic apologists and sort of synthesize in a way that comes out on the other end as Carlo's answers to these comebacks, right? Mm-hmm. Where I'm utilizing the best answers from Jimmy Aiken and Tim Staples and other apologists and synthesizing them with my own flavor, my own articulation and how they're fitting in my own mental framework and then presenting that. And so far, so good. Like people have been offering positive feedback uh, for the book with regard to its usefulness as well as with regard to the robustness of the answers that I'm articulating in response to these Protestant comebacks. That's Carlo Broussard, who's with me today. He's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. He's a speaker. He can come to your area. Go to carlobroussard.com. You'll see a variety of all the things that he's doing there on his website, carlobroussard.com. I'll share that on the screen for a minute. And folks, if you want to see this interview, you'll be able to see the books where you can order them online yourself. Just go to my Facebook page, I Love My Catholic Faith, or you can go to our YouTube channel. And you'll be at my Catholic Faith TV. You'll be able to see these interviews with Carlo and be able to get direct access to those links as well. That's Carlo Broussard, who's with me today. He's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. He's a speaker. He can come to your area. Go to carlobroussard.com and get to get to look at a very handsome man right there. Yes. So <laughs> I don't know about that, Tom, but I'll, I appreciate the compliment. Hey, and I got to use the flattery. I got to use the flattery <laughs> to get you in there. But go ahead. You're picking up something. Go ahead. Yeah. No, by the way, you mentioned uh, somebody out there wanting to bring me in to speak at their parish. They can actually go to CatholicAnswersSpeakers.com. So you might want to put a link uh, to that in the show notes page. CatholicAnswersSpeakers.com. Fill out the online form and then our seminar coordinator coordinator will be in touch right away. So that's one way, another way in which they can get in touch with me to bring me out to speak. Nice. I love that. Thank you. That's great to know. And I've heard Carlo speak. He's very engaging. Um, you will come away saying, wow, my brain was, I just, <laughs> I just had mental exercise there in a high degree. You are, you don't mince words. You don't waste words. You carry a lot of weightiness in what you present. So Folks, if you want to uh, uh, really bring uh, bring out a speaker who can get meat to serve up meat, not just fluff, Carla yeah. will do that for you very well. Carla, what I liked about your book um, uh, on meeting the Protestant response is what you had said, which is, I know that when I bring the standard argument to, you know, where did where where do you see the first pope in the Bible, right? And that was your right. first that was your first response. They do have responses to that, but boy, yeah. if I have to try to figure out what all the responses are, where where do I go dig up all those re- bits of research yeah. and then be able to somehow get them all in one place? It's like, that's such a gift that your book has done. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah really. Yeah. It, it, it's a great gift in terms of folks who don't have time to do all that research and they're looking for sure. one place to say... I, I, I've got the basics down, the fundamentals. I've got the fundamentals yeah. down, but the responses, now all of a sudden it becomes a tree of responses. Yeah. Where do I figure out the main branches of those trees and then how to succinctly respond to them? I think yeah. that's one of the best gifts of your book, Meeting the, Pro- uh, the Protestant Response. Yeah, well, blessed be God. Yeah, I sought out to do that because, you know, if you're reading one Protestant author, he may offer his, what he thinks are the, two best comebacks, say, to Matthew 16, 18. But then he's going to leave out a few other comebacks that 
other Protestant apologists find very persuasive. And so you have to, you know, that's just one example of where you would have to read both authors, right, in order to try to get uh, a good handle on what a Protestant might say in response to our Catholic argument appealing to Matthew 16, 18, say. So having a resource that catalogs these common comebacks, those which I found in my own research to be most persuasive upon first reading, that was a guiding principle that I used to select which comebacks I would tackle in the book, like thinking to myself, which of these comebacks would I be persuaded by mm-hmm. if I did not have the knowledge I currently have or did not have the resources that I have access to in order to analyze these comebacks? Because some of the comebacks upon initial reading, even as an apologist, I had to seek help for, right? It's like, Jimmy Aiken, help me out. Tim Staples, what do you think about this? And uh, uh, utilize the resources that I have to construct answers to these comebacks. And so that was one of the guiding principles. And to have all of that in a succinct fashion catalog, I think is very useful and helpful for somebody to just pull off the shelf, look at the papacy section and say, okay, here's Matthew 16, 18. How do product, what, what, what is it that a Protestant might say in response so that I can be prepared for that? Because often, Tom, what happens is for so long in popular apologetics, we've been trained as Catholics to simply cite Bible passages mm-hmm. in support of a belief. You have your Catholic belief and then 25 Bible passages, right? Without learning how to handle these passages and exegete them and analyze them in a way that shows how the passage actually supports the belief mm-hmm. and then be ready for counter responses. And so often you can, a Catholic can find him or herself being hesitant to appeal to a particular text because they're not quite sure how a Protestant might offer an alternative reading and what to say in response. And so by doing this in the book, not only am I providing the Catholic the opportunity to go beyond mere Bible citing, and Bible verse slinging back and forth, but providing an, exe- an exegesis or a commentary on the passage that helps that Catholic get over that hesitancy or fear in appealing to the text. So they can confidently appeal to the text in a conversation and be ready for the part two and what the Protestant might say in response. Yeah, that's again, Carl Broussard with me today on uh, on the program. And Carlo, I, uh, for folks who are listening, if you want to know the, the range of topics that Carlo is discussing, and we'll dig into, into these in just a moment, he, he's mentioned the papacy a few times. That's the first one that he launches with, but then quickly moves into a whole variety of topics. Again, covers so many of the typical points of attack that Catholics face, the sacraments, and then looking at Mary and the saints and scripture and tradition and, and salvation in a variety of forms, uh, faith and works and things like that. Covered just, a, again, a, a, a real widespread of, of topics, which is so helpful. Um, I've got a question. Um, I, I've got, I want to go in two directions. Um, um, the first is the, the gift that you see happening in this moment in Catholic apologetics, because it feels like we're in a in a moment um, that it's kind of like a new horizon. And, and I know that sounds kind of odd. I, I remember back to the late 80s into the early 90s. It felt like that was the almost like the high point of Catholic apologetics in terms of it just rushing onto the scene and it had a prominence right. and it had uh, it was it was it was seen as a source of renewal in the church. 
Right. And even though it's continued in the last 25 years, do you sense and do you the folks at Catholic Answers sense that this is a new moment? Um, and if so, why? Because I, I've got a theory in my head. And I don't want you to guess it, but are you sensing and in, in the folks at Catholic Answers sensing that there's a fresh hunger for apologetic work among Catholics and uh, a fresh uh, uh, demand for the kinds of, of work that you guys are doing? Yeah, so a uh, couple of thoughts there, Tom. So with with there is there is a new moment in Catholic apologetics and on a variety of different levels. So one would be the extent to which Catholic apologetics is extending and having to face right. So there is a a plethora of more topics that we're having to engage with than say in the late 80s and early 90s, where the core focus of Catholic apologetics was these sorts of issues of the Catholic Protestant dialogue. Mm -hmm. Currently, of course, we're having to face cultural issues that are dealing with the LGBTQ issue, right, and homosexuality and transgenderism, and having to face those challenges. And of course, the abortion, uh, the abortion debate is, the abortion issue is always there front and center as well, especially nowadays, where there's a renewed interest in that conversation. So there, it is new to that extent. Before, transgen transgender issues were not having to be dealt with, nor was same-sex sexual activity and living out that lifestyle. That wasn't a, a key topic of concern for us as Catholics, but it is now. So it is new in that respect. There's also another level, I think, of newness in the Catholic apologetics moment and that is the level of sophistication with which people are engaging in the dialogue. Now, granted, you, you always have your, your common everyday conversation. Where's that in the Bible? That question is still asked, right? Like you said, you had a conversation the other day where that question was asked from your friends over at your house. So people are still asking that question, but there is something new in the apologetics world, especially with the advent of social media and podcasting, where... There is a higher level of sophistication that is coloring the conversation to where we as apologists have to up our game because the count, many of the counter responses and arguments from those who pose challenges to us as Catholics are coming from very sophisticated people, intellectually speaking, whether it be a Protestant or a skeptic or an atheist. And so there is an, an upping of the game with regard to the level of sophistication that uh, we at Catholic Answers are aware of and doing our best to meet that challenge. And I think in the book, Meeting the Protestant Response, at least from what I've received from feedback from other authors and apologists who are reading it, that Meeting the Protestant Response actually uh, is a representation of that new level of sophistication and meeting that new challenge. Still old issues and same topics but being presented in a way now that is operating on a level of sophistication that we need to be operating on. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's, so it's interesting uh, what you said. You said a lot there. And um, uh, you actually went into both of my areas that I wanted to cover uh, about what was new. And then um, are there different issues that are coming up around the cultural uh, battle that we're facing? Today, again, I'm talking with Carl Broussard. You can see, if you're with me watching this uh, broadcast, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments, 
very valuable book. You can get that right online at uh, uh, catholic.com, which is a, a wonderful follow-up to the book, Meeting, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. And by the way, there's a special. I don't know if you knew this, Carlo. I did not. Books. <laughs> there you go. For you, special, a special price today, $30 for three wow. of your books. Fantastic. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, so yeah, that's great. And then uh, again, Carlo's website is carlobroussard.com. Please encourage you to do that. You can see how to spell it K A R L O, Carlo, K A R L O. And then Broussard is B R O U S S A R D, carlobroussard.com. And then again, if you are interested in getting Carlo as a speaker, catholic.com forward slash speakers will get you to the ability to uh, see if he's available to come and speak at your parish. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. Today, again, I'm talking with Carl Broussard. You can see, if you're with me watching this uh, broadcast, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. So, Carlo, you were speaking about, uh, in this book, the way that you put it together, this, this new moment, and you talked about it in terms of sophistication. Yeah. And it feels like sophistication is required even just in the Catholic Church itself. Um, we think about um, the papacy of Pope Francis as he has gone on and, and, and his mode of teaching um, is different, very distinct as compared to St. John Paul II or Pope Benedict, yeah. and, and even just say the history of, of, of papal teaching. And that has led some folks to be confused, wondering what's being taught. And right. in, in some ways, there's more than just catechetical uh, work that needs to be done here. There's also apologetic work because yes. um, people can come and use a papal statement to then let the tail wag the dog. And all of a sudden the Pope is being put in front of heresy or heterodoxy and yeah. uh, taken out of context. And so right. it, th that I think is a, um, it's a major quandary for yeah. ordinary Catholics who, who see and have watched this divide happen, not only between what we'd maybe consider like traditional, the Orthodox versus those that are, have a more liberal progressive uh, bent of things, but even among those that self-identify as very committed, faithful Catholics, there can be this big divide. Yeah. And um, it would seem to me that having the, even just the toolkit of an apologist and having yeah. the the ability to think things through sure. from the standpoint of, a, of an apologist that that would be very valuable right now. It, it, do you guys ever like, uh, wrestle with that, face that when you're out and about doing your seminars and teaching? All the time, Tom. <laughs> you know, it, I'm glad you brought it up because I was actually just doing an interview earlier today and they asked me that question about kind of what's new. And this was a topic I actually brought up. Like this is they were asking me, what are some of the relevant issues that we're facing as apologists? And this is one I brought up, you know, helping people navigate the Francis waters, the Pope Francis waters. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
making the proper distinctions that need to be made with regard to righteous, legitimate, justified frustration due to ambiguous statements that may lead someone to confusion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and as well as just things he has done that we might disagree with on a prudential level and distinguishing all of that from authentic teaching of his ordinary magisterium, etc. And so it is indeed a topic at the forefront of what we have to deal with as apologists because it does weigh heavy on people's hearts and minds and they are asking questions, expressing frustration. And so it, it's difficult at times, but a needed task to help people navigate these waters to bring peace to mind and peace to their heart, right? Concerning the kind of confusion that's often... Um, brought about, whether it be due to Pope Francis himself or misinterpretations of Pope Francis or unnecessary highlighting of faults of Pope Francis and on down the line. And so that's definitely an issue that we're having to deal with. But to your point about having the mind of an apologist being helpful to navigate these waters, absolutely, Tom. And I would recommend a great resource for your listeners and your viewers my colleague and good friend Jimmy Aiken's book, Teaching with Authority, where he lays out from an apologist's point of view an understanding, a proper understanding of the different levels of church teaching, say. And once you have that in hand, you have that sort of blueprint that you can take what, say, Pope Francis says, right, and put it on that, that blueprint and to see how it's aligning in order to discern which level of teaching or even no level of teaching, right, does this statement uh, from Pope Francis map onto, or whether it's simply within the order of prudence and where we stand as a lay faithful son or daughter of the church in relation to these prudential judgments and what sort of uh, conclusions can we make? Do we have to wholeheartedly agree? Can we disagree? And on down the line. So absolutely having a very concise and distinct understanding of these issues can bring a lot of peace to the heart and minds of the lay faithful who are confused by some of the issues in our church today. That's awesome. That's uh, Carlo Broussard again with me today, a staff apologist at Catholic Answers, and uh, mentioning a book, Teaching with Authority by Jimmy Aiken. Uh, also, as you folks hear him regularly on Catholic Answers Live as well. Um, right. And so here's the book that he's referencing on my screen here, if you're watching the video portion of this, Teaching with Authority. Again, also available on Catholic.com. That's Catholic Answers website. Today, I'm talking with Carlo Broussard about his book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Um, I want to I, I wanna, uh, go into that book, but I wanted to also highlight um, when we have a chance, um, you mentioned uh, gender ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, and how it it almost it feels like if that seeps into the church and we have Catholic educators uh, and Catholic leaders attempting to reconcile uh, really a demonic ideology of transgenderism yeah. uh, to marry that with or synthesize it with uh, a Catholic under Catholic anthropology and moral teaching. Yeah, that is a that is the front line of the front line today. And absolutely need, it is. And is that something that you're also seeing when you're out there? Because it's like talk about a, a whole new realm for you guys, yeah. 
for a full-time Catholic apologist to be going after. I don't know how many times, Carlo, I've said on my on my program, please just tell us that God made us male and female. Just teach it. Teach it, explain yeah. it, defend it, promote it. God made us male and female, and this will lead us to flourishing. It's true. Absolutely. It's good. It's beautiful. And when we don't have a vigorous defense of this, kids suffer. Families will be destroyed. Lives will be devastated if we can't simply defend a perennial scriptural and traditional teaching of the church. Yeah, absolutely. So often what I've experienced in conversations with folks is their fear of the individual who's embodying and embracing this contemporary gender ideology, having their feelings hurt or being mentally and emotionally unstable and it leading to sort of their emotional response and reaction that would make the relationship difficult, right, to maintain. And it's it's out of fear of that and wanting to preserve sort of a, a, their, their, their emotional response and feelings that they are hesitant to proclaim or defend the truth. Now, granted, we do have to take into consideration how the person will respond and be gentle with regard to their emotional instability, perhaps. But we have to consider also, Tom, what you just beautifully mentioned, that if we do not try our best to gently and lovingly help them reorder their mind to conform to reality, we're actually doing them harm mm -hmm. by if we're going to go so far as to affirm them in their embracing of a false reality that cannot possibly lead to their human flourishing and happiness. And in fact, is an indictment of God himself telling God that your plan for male and female biological sex is not good enough, God, right? Mm -hmm. And so we as Christians have to keep in mind the importance and the gift of reality and truth itself concerning our nature as human beings, and even as individual human beings, as male and female, that that is a good that God has created us with. And if we're going to choose to not share that good with others, then we cannot possibly be loving others because to love others is to wield the good of the other and to help them achieve that good. And so if we're helping them embrace a false reality, we cannot possibly in principle be loving them. And so these are things that people, that we as Catholics especially need to be keeping in mind as we're trying to discern how to navigate these waters and conversations with people who are espousing the contemporary gender ideology. Well, and, and Carlo, think about it. We got to equip moms and dads to be able to speak right. to their kids about this. We have to equip moms and dads to be able to speak back to self, you know, Catholic high schools that are instituting policies that permit and promote the idea of utilizing pronouns and right. establishing of transgender clubs, things of this nature, as if somehow they're being compassionate and tolerant when in fact they are leading kids to medicalize self-harm. They're leading right. kids to depression. They're leading kids to um, be put into situations where they're going to be making medical decisions without their parents' knowledge or consent that will impact them for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And, and it's like, why? where's the courage? Where's the backbone? Where's the strength? Right. And, and, even, and even more fundamentally, Tom, like, Prescending from all of those negative consequences, it's more fundamentally a matter of not affirming them to engage in moral harm. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and engaging in a lifestyle and embracing a lifestyle that's going to harm them morally speaking and thus be in conflict with their human happiness and flourishing as a human being. It's the, it's the good and the true and the beautiful that's most fundamental that we as Catholics have to do our best to uphold, even in the face of those who will be emotionally disturbed mm -hmm. by our articulation of that picture and of that truth. And we have to remember our Lord's words from what is what, not this pat recent, not yesterday, Sunday, but maybe last week's gospel. I have come to cast fire and I long that it be kindled. And he talks about the division that will come about within the family, not for division's sake, but because it's a consequence and a result of those who reject the truth that lead to the division. Well, and, and I, you know, talk about a scriptural warning. What about the Lord and what he said to those that would um, cause harm to one of the little ones? Right? Absolutely. Be better to have the millstone cast around your neck and thrown into the sea. Mm -hmm. Don't throw the stones at me. That's right. Jesus, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, again, I'm talking with Carlo Broussard today. And uh, Carlo, let's, let's get to your book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Um, again, folks, I've already mentioned several times about the book that you can get it on Catholic.com. Meeting the Protestant Response gives you responses to Protestants who respond to your answers to their questions. Now, that's a long trail to follow there. But it's a very important one. And here's the thing, Carlo, anybody that's engaged at all in, in defending their Catholic faith knows exactly what I just said. You right. bring your answers to people's questions, and you know what? They come back with more questions. They come yeah. back with an objection to your response. So let me say, you you cover the papacy, you cover the sacraments, you cover baptism, uh, confession, the Eucharist, several chapters, sections on the Eucharist. You cover Mary and the saints. You cover scripture and tradition. You cover salvation, all these different segments. Um, among them all, which one were you the most passionate about? Which one did you find... Uh, the most uh, the, that sense of um, urgency and passion to say, I want to bring these answers, these responses out into the open to equip uh, my Catholic brothers and sisters. Yeah, I suppose the, the first thought that comes to mind, I guess it was the comebacks to the papacy mm -hmm. and looking at Matthew 16, 18 through 19, Luke 22, 29 through 32 and John 21, 15 through 17. Uh, because that's sort of fundamental and foundational to the Catholic identity and the Catholic mental framework and what we believe, that it's the papacy, Peter, being instituted as the visible principle and source of unity for Christ's church here on earth. And that is that which distinguishes us from all other Christians, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have doctrine A through XY, right? but not have the Z, which is the papacy and, you know, and not be Catholic. So I suppose the comebacks to that. And of course, I, the, the amount of text devoted to that topic sort of speaks for itself. Right. Because I, I think I do four chapters, you know, four biblical passages or four, yeah, four biblical passages dealing with the papacy. And each of those passages has anywhere from four to seven comebacks for each. And so the so that topic has the most text devoted to it. So well, I suppose that would be sort of a key central uh theme there. Okay, so I got to tell you. So I was surprised at the level of detailed comebacks that you were able to identify in there. First of all, let me just say that um but I can tell you I learned something. 
Okay. I learned not, not that I, I mean, I learned a whole bunch of things, but I had never for some mysterious reason in my head, maybe it was my blind spot made a connection between Matthew 16, Christ's use of the rock and Matthew seven, yeah. Christ's use of the rock because it precedes it. So I never thought of connecting those two. Right. It was so interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those moments, right? It's such a grace. It's such a gift. And thanks be to God and for his for his goodness, right? To give us those nuggets and give us those gifts where we go, wow, aha, right? And it's true. So the importance of that parallel is that Matthew 7, 24 through 25 is Jesus' parable about the wise man building his house upon the rock. And when the floods and the rains come, the house is immovable because it's built upon the rock. And in Matthew 16, 18, it's, uh, Matthew seems to be communicating what Jesus is saying to Peter in light of Jesus' parable in Matthew 7, that Jesus is the wise man building his house upon the rock, Peter, so that the church would be immovable with the floods and the rains coming from Satan, right? And the errors and doctrinal errors. And the key to connecting those two passages is the use of the Greek word Petra, in the second instance of the use for a rock in Matthew 16, 18, you are Petros, you, Simon, you are Peter, Petros. And upon this Petra, which is the Greek word used for the metaphorical rock upon which Christ builds his church, that's the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 7, 24 through 25, and talking about the rock, Petra, upon which the wise man builds his house. That's the, that's the more common term that's used for rock in Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament. And so what I point out in the book is that Matthew, rather than using Petros, which is the Greek word used for Simon's new name, mm -hmm. rather than using that word again in the second instance in reference to the metaphorical rock upon which Christ is building his church, Matthew uses the more common noun, the more familiar term for his audience, Petra, and possibly to preserve the parallel with Matthew chapter 7. And so that offers a plausible explanation as to why Matthew did not use Petros used in the first instance for the second instance, and rather he used a different word, Petro, which, as I argue in the book, they mean the same thing, but they are two different words. Mm -hmm. And that offers an explanation as to why there is a difference in words as opposed to using the same word. You know, Carlo, uh, in your book, you you cover many of these topics in, in great detail. I was surprised that there weren't more comebacks um, related to tradition, that the way the scriptures talk about scripture and tradition, and you covered yeah. it, but I was expecting that maybe that section was going to be longer. Was that a surprise to you? Uh, yeah, it was. Like One of the things that you, know, you kind of notice when you're doing a book like this is that you kind of learn like this is really the key text, right? So there's not a lot of biblical texts that we appeal to in support of sacred tradition explicitly like Second Thessalonians 2.15. Mm -hmm. And so all of the conversation is going to surround around Second Thessalonians 2.15. Now, granted, we can appeal to Second Thessalonians 3.6 and 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he talks about tradition there and a few other passages, but the comebacks are all going to be the same to those passages as well. Mm -hmm. So it was a matter of just focusing the comebacks on 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the key comeback being that, well, even if we grant that there were distinct oral traditions in the early church, 
they were all put down in writing and what is in writing is identical to what is in the oral tradition. And so the oral traditions that Paul talks about is just simply identical to the writings. So that's one set of comebacks. And then another category of comebacks is saying, okay, I'll grant that there were distinct oral traditions, traditions distinct from what is in writing, but the Catholic inference that they were binding and authoritative is what some Protestants deny. So I talk about some of those comebacks as well, but those that's the key text and the comebacks that are specific to that biblical text. Now, there's other objections to sacred tradition that a Protestant may pose, but they don't deal specifically with 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Consequently, those comebacks didn't make it into the book because the book was focused on the text that we appeal to and the comebacks to our reading of that text. Mm -hmm. Makes great sense. So Carla, last question for you in the time that we have that remains. So again, folks, if you're watching this video, you see the book Meeting the Protestant Response by Carlo Broussard. It's on catholic.com. You can get the book here. You can also get it as part of a special, uh, picking up three books by Carlo, not only Meeting the, the Protestant Response, but Meeting the Protestant Challenge, um, his first book connected to that, and then Prepare the Way and Purgatory is for Real. So um, three books for $30 there, you get that, and then pick up the book as well, Meeting, meeting the Protestant Response. So here's my question. When I think about books like this and the work of apologetics, you know, it's one of those truisms that uh, apologetics doesn't prove that it's true. It shows that it's reasonable, right? So it there's that sense of saying grace is working with nature here. And so in the journey to conversion to the Catholic faith, when you're engaging in the apologetic work and books like this, meeting the Protestant response, how um, how do you talk about, think about the way in which grace is helping to bring about that conversion of mindset to mm. be something that works hand in hand with the human effort to sort through and to put into question what I have believed, what I believe, and, and what I've uh, attacked as correct from a scriptural perspective? Just sort of that grace in nature aspect yeah. of conversion. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my first thought, Tom, is that I am very uh, empathetic, I guess is the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm trying to articulate? Like, I totally get that some people do not see the truth, right? So like I, I started at the outside of our conversation, so many people say, why don't they get it? Well, the fundamental answer to that question is because God, for whatever reason in his providential plan, did not give the grace for the mind to see the truth. Because that I currently can see the truth to these things or that you can see the truth is in virtue of the grace that God has given us to enlighten the mind, to empower the will, to pursue, right? But even in the pursuit itself, sometimes God, and for whatever reason, permits the mind to fall short of seeing the truth mm -hmm. so that whenever the mind does see the truth, it's the grace of God that he's given the mind that light to see the truth. So I'm very, I'm very understanding of people who do not at whatever point in their journey of knowledge, do not see that truth for whatever reason in God's providential plan, he has not given that light. Our role 
is to respond to God's grace in our life, to do what we can to share what we know that could possibly either be a cause of that person seeing the truth right then and there in cooperation or collaboration with the grace that God is going to give. So God's grace is moving me to share the information, God's grace also being given to the person to whom I'm speaking to enlighten the mind to see the truth. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps God is moving me by grace to share the truth and articulate the truth in a way that might not necessarily cause them to see the truth by God's grace here and now, but actually prepare them to see the truth at some other point in their journey of knowledge when God wills to give the grace for the mind to see the truth. Because Tom, I don't know about you, but in my own experience, brother, there are some things that you know I know now and I did not know in the past. But at the same time, it is also true that there are some things that I only know now, that I know now only because of certain seeds that were planted along the path and the journey of knowledge prior to that I wouldn't have the knowledge I have now without those proper seeds planted, predisposing me and preparing me to see the truth now. And so I think that's sort of the mentality and the mindset that we have to have when we're engaging in conversations with folks. It's ultimately up to God whether he's going to give the grace for the mind to see the truth now, right then and there, or if God is just simply giving him graces to prepare the mind to see the truth at some other point in the journey of knowledge. And whenever we do our part and we share the knowledge, we can simply step back and say, God, <laughs> the rest is yours, baby. It's up to you. It's your business now, right? And of course, we cooperate through prayer, et cetera, but ultimately it's up to him. I love that. Carl, it's a great answer. I love that metaphor, uh, the scriptural metaphor, sowing seeds, right? Meeting the Protestant response, my brothers and sisters, it's a great book. It'll help you be equipped to sow seeds into the uh, into those dialogues that you're having with folks who are searching for an understanding of the faith, who are attempting to maybe weaken their, their approach to the Catholic faith or attack the scriptural relationship to uh, the teachings of the church. Meeting the Protestant Response, a wonderful book to help you with that. Again, if you're interested in Carlo, to learn more about him, his articles, audio, video, etc., carlobroussard.com, carlobroussard.com. You can also look him up as a speaker on the Catholic Answer Speaker website, catholic.com forward slash speakers. Carlo, you were very generous with me today to take as much time as you did. I loved the conversation. Really appreciate it. We do pray God's blessings for you and, and for your wonderful work as an apologist. Hey, thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure being on with you as well, my friend. God bless you. Hope to do it again sometime in the future. All right.